This is a special God pod which was recorded as part of our McDonald Lecture Series 2016. The McDonald Lecture Series is a series of lectures generously sponsored by the McDonald Agape Foundation. We hope you enjoy it. of you who are listening to this on GodPod, uh, we are here discussing um, a lecture which is a fascinating lecture we just heard from Professor Catherine Tanner, and uh, our um, group today that we're discussing is uh, Jane Williams, who's always part of GodPod pretty well, Hello. Uh, and also Donna Lazenby, who is also a tutor in uh, apologetics and spirituality here at St. Melitis. Hello. And um, Catherine, Catherine Tanner, who's our guest for today. So um, uh, we just uh, listened to a fascinating lecture on Christianity and the, the sort of new spirit of capitalism, just exploring um, themes of um, the kind of essentially competitive and individualizing nature of, of um, capitalism at, at the moment and how Christianity offers a very different vision of, of life from that. And so we just want to explore some of that through some of our questions here and then get some questions from the audience a little bit later on. Um, but if I can kick off with a, uh, a theme and a question, I suppose... Um, one of the, I suppose, a, 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 when you think of um, grace and the divine life, they are by their very nature limitless. They are things which in some ways they're, they're not scarce resources. They're things that can be always multiplied, can be shared, and the more one gets of grace and divine life, the more there is of it. And I suppose you, one could come back to that and say, well, when we come to the economy, when we think of actually... Um, the scarce goods of this earth. There, there is a sort of limit to them, and therefore that inevitably brings around a sense of competitiveness, which actually a kind of um, well, an economy of grace, to use your phrase in one of your earlier books, uh, doesn't have. Um, how would you, how would you, how do you sort of respond to that? The sense that um, you know, transferring a, a kind of an idea of grace and the divine life as a model for um, for how we relate into the kind of the, the actual uh, world of a, of a where the things that we are trading and exchanging, oil, coal, goods, have a limit to them, therefore they inevitably bring in a sense of competition. Or do you see that differently? Do you see there's a kind of a, a correlation between grace and the divine life? Yeah, I mean, there are a number of different ways to approach that. I mean, one way to approach it is just to talk about, uh, talk about different forms of competition. So it might, in fact, be the case that within finite life, some sort of competition is inevitable because of scarce resources one would need to or want to deny that necessarily. But I'm, as I was doing in this uh, lecture, I'm trying to distinguish different sorts of competition. And, um, uh, you know, particularly when you're talking about this uh, very intense personal form of direct rivalry, I'm saying that it's characteristic of this particular form of capitalism and not characteristic of other forms of capitalism, say, where competition goes by way of uh, pricing mechanism or something that is preventing direct uh, conflict between people. I mean, that, that was supposedly one of the kind of benefits of commercial society in that uh, people were not in direct uh, person-to-person rivalry with one another. They, they were in some kind of competition. You know, you wanted to sell your goods uh, for more, and that meant that somebody else had to 
Um, you know, there was some kind of conflict. People obviously didn't want to pay as much. But there, there are different forms of competition that are characteristic of different forms of capitalism. So this is a form of competition that I'm trying to directly oppose. But the other way of approaching the issue is just to say that uh, I'm trying to um, kind of counter what I see as a, an artificial separation between what it means to live a graced life um, in virtue of one's relationship to something, God, that's not a scarce resource artificial separation between a graced life and then the rest of your life. And I'm talking about a form of life in, empowered by Christ's grace that is all-encompassing and also encompasses one's economic relationships so that something is altered about those economic relationships. I mean, if, if a person's whole lives are changed, it, it means that their lives in community and economic uh, connection with others, uh, that's also transformed in some way. Do you, do you think there can be a kind of... Um a kind of redeemed competitiveness. I'm thinking of the text like Romans 12, you know, outdo one another in showing honor, which introduces a kind of reverse type of competitiveness in doing good as opposed to sort of you know, grabbing resources for oneself. One thinks of um, some of the, of the language in the, in the monastic tradition mm -hmm. of Christian faith, which, is, which, which can be almost a sort of you know, competitive saintliness, which um, sometimes is sort of strays into a sort of, you know, I'm better than you type thing. Um, but in other senses, you know, in its positive sense, can be a, a kind of this, this, this sense of um, wanting to spur one another on to, to good works, as it were. So can, is competition in itself something to be avoided, or can it be redeemed? Are there kind of models within Christian faith of a, of a kind of redeemed, competitive... Yeah, competitive well, again, I think you, you need to be careful about what you mean by competition there. I mean, on some level, yes, of course, that's true. I mean, you're living in community with others where the object is to live a life that's transparent to Christ's own grace. And, yeah, I mean, you can make, of course, relative distinctions of success in that project and, yeah, use that as a way to spur uh, others to... Uh, the same heights, if you want. But, uh, but I'm trying to, yeah, I would say that that's fine. But uh, that's, uh, I think you have to be careful about what, what exact form of competition that is. And it can obviously devolve into certain competitive uh, competitions over saintliness, if, if you will, that uh, are very distortive of uh, Christian re relationships. And yeah, I think mimic uh, forms of competition that are found in the wider world that are not really for anyone's good. I, I was um, very struck, Catherine, by um, some of the things you were saying about how we come to value things. And I was very struck by your analysis of the fact that this form of capitalism actually in the end means that nobody can secure their value. Nobody can know that, yeah. what, mm -hmm. that they have any real worth. Because somebody might come up behind you and do it better and take a bit more. Um, and the, how that really contrasts with the picture that you, you then put of um, how um, the value that is held, that every, every individual whose value is held by God, that value is unshakable. Um, and it's just a really interesting analysis because, and, and one that feels quite counterintuitive, doesn't it? Um, that, the, the, that you sort of feel that quite capitalism is all about valuing things. How come it doesn't work? Yeah, well, again, it's, uh, I'm trying to do a careful analysis of uh, you know, how exactly value is being established. So a lot of what I'm drawing on there is it's not you know, theological material there, but it just has to do with the difference between, a, as I was saying, a relative benchmark, relative standard versus an absolute one. And that, you know, 
the, the absolute, absolute one might be God, but there are all kinds of versions of absolute uh, standards, and uh, there's a lot of literature out there that's you know making basically the point that I was making. I'm getting it from them, which is that uh, this insistence on a relative benchmark has the effect of kind of rat ratcheting up the level of performance that's being required in a kind of unending uh, struggle to <laughs> achieve something that's not achievable. And yeah, there's plenty of literature about that. So I'm just drawing the parallel between what's being discussed in that literature and, and what uh, Christians could say of a similar sort about where an absolute kind of value or benchmark or standard is figuring in their own discourse and identifying it with God. I mean, Rowan really, does this all the time, I think. And that's really interesting because, because it is quite important. You're not just talking about Christianity versus everything else. You're no. talking about a way of seeing the world. Yeah. Whether you're a Christian or not. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you so much, Catherine. I think what I particularly enjoyed about that, well, lots of things actually, but one of them was just such a systematic approach, that sense of the setting up so clearly of what's unhelpful um, with the financially focused economic model as opposed to this beautiful vision that we're given in life in Christ. Um, you definitely talked about this, but I would actually enjoy sharpening it up um, even more, probably because I teach Christian spirituality. And as Graham was saying, there's actually quite a strong emphasis on effort often in, in that world, rightly or wrongly. So perhaps it's about what kind of effort. But my question, just to sharpen up, is what are we actually responsible for? Um, you definitely talked around it. So I found I was getting particularly interested when you were talking about um, the, the sanctification of the creature, the developments um, of engagement with an ongoing project that actually does require our effort. And you almost seem to be, a bit like Graham was suggesting, you were redeeming um, the... Um, uh, the idea of competition, I felt there was some redeeming of the idea of the individual, so the individual isn't lost or subsumed in this great system of eternity, but is actually held as a particular who makes particular contributions like their particular achievements. And then that started to make me think about what's the role of the Holy Spirit in this as the one who brings the particular creature into the kind of creature they're meant to be. I realise that's quite a vast doctrinal question. So, no, but that's, sorry, that's, that's, that's how I the, think. That's, no, 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 that's the doctrinal issue. At that's stake. the doctrinal um, issue. Excellent, I nailed one of those. Very good. Well but done, but this is, thank you. But, but so, so it's kind of a two-pronged question in a way, which is, is what are we responsible for? And perhaps what is the role of the Holy Spirit? Because it was the Holy Spirit's work I was feeling really pressing through. The sanctifier, the one who engages with the effort, the one who redeems our particularity, not in this collapsed individualism. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, there's an enormous <laughs> lot of stuff that can be said on that connection. I hope you'll help me at some point. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm trying to come up with an understanding of the way the Holy Spirit works in communal life, where you're doing justice to the very messy, sin-ridden character of every human community, including Christian communities. Uh, but at the same time, not uh, kind of reducing the spirits working to that messy process. That, that's you know the emphasis here on this third external thing that's doing the coordinating. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that something is coming out of those messy conflictual processes that is not actually uh, sort of governable or intended by uh, the participants. So like it's not a planned economy, if you want. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. But that is, that is the crucial question, trying to come up with an understanding of the, the way the Holy Spirit is at work in human communities that would um, 
uh, you know, I'm trying to, to lay out, again, fairly carefully, uh, how uh, a community would be organized by the Holy Spirit in ways that would look different in interesting ways from the way uh, communities are ordinarily organized. In this case, in the economic case, uh, in, in contrast to the kind of ordinary sense in which the invisible hand, you know, uh, organizes market society supposedly for the good of everybody. I'm trying to avoid that. It's not exactly that. On the other hand, it's not like a planned economy where we're intentionally uh, on the basis of our own, you know, well-intentioned efforts trying to coordinate our activities so that something good, uh, you know, some form of beneficial well-being, material well-being comes out of that. But yeah, to put Christianity into conversation with a number of different models about how people are brought together for cooperative projects so that it has its own distinctive kind of characteristics. And I guess you could take that question of the spirit's role in in forming new forms of, of, of human community in a number of different directions. And I suppose I'd, I'd kind of like to tease out the, the role of the church in this. As yeah, that's what I was talking about. Although. Exactly, that's right, yeah. <laughs> in in terms of, um, do you envisage, because I guess you could, you could go in the direction of saying, actually, we're looking for a kind of reformed capitalism uh, where the church is active in um, uh, agitating for trying to bring about a change to our, our ways of social relating within society that reflect a little bit more of this relating to this third thing, which is God. Um, or are we actually talking, or do you, do you envisage more a sense of the Christian community as the place in which this new kind of relating is to be exemplified, where there's a new kind of economy that is brought out? And of course, that word economy can be used for money, but it can also be used in the kind of theological sense of, of the divine economy, the divine way of relating to us, um, the divine law, as it were. So would you want to take it in, in which of those directions would you want to take it in terms of a, a, a working towards a kind of reformed capitalism within our yeah but well, I'm, I'm, again I'm trying to avoid yeah. a kind of either or there sure. yeah. I mean uh, uh, yeah that uh, in the language that I was using the Christian project as a communal project is not limited to what you do in church uh, because uh, church uh, is not uh, all-encompassing. You know, it doesn't encompass your work life. It doesn't include your political life. It doesn't include all sorts of things that should also be reformed um, uh, as a matter of uh, Christian practice. So again, there's you know, I don't see them as uh, all that distinct. And do you, do you see? I mean, can you give us sort of ideas of what kind of things? Uh, in both of those spheres, what would a, a new kind of way of relating within a church context look like uh, economically? What would, a, what would the beginnings of a reformed capitalism look like? What kind of changes do you actually see coming into play within our economic um, ways of relating to one another within the wider society? Yeah, well, um, yeah, again, that could be answered on all kinds of different levels, but... Um, I mean, clearly the, the current economic system is not working for the well-being of the majority of people who are participants one way or another in it. Uh, and certainly that has to be changed. There are all kinds of ways that that could be done. I mean, in the, in the wider lecture series, I mean, I'm trying to lay out, again, pretty carefully what's particularly problematic about what I'm saying is a kind of finance discipline form of capitalism, that it tends to... Uh, 
uh, kind of siphon profit up um, and often, you know, target uh, in ways that are I think, more extreme than usual, target those who are at the lowest rungs of uh, the economic ladder or who are obviously in some way excluded from it, like the way debt works. Uh, you know, in industrial capitalism, it's... I mean, you can exclude lots of people from uh, the uh, process and they don't have any money to buy things, but ultimately there's a capitalist interest in ha people having some money to buy stuff. And here, you don't need to even have, you don't need people to buy stuff, you just need to have, uh, you know, whatever money they have, you need, you need to have a mechanism to take it from them, which generally means putting them into debt. Uh, yeah, so there are all kinds of things that can be done to interrupt uh, this particular way of making money. Uh, but in a sense, uh, I get the impression that you're not really very interested in that. That's up to us. I mean, you started by saying something like Christianity expands your imagination beyond common sense. Yeah. Fantastic, fantastic line. Yeah. And so what, uh, am I right in thinking that part of what you're doing is challenging us to reimagine how we form human beings. Yeah, that's the primary focus of the lectures overall, that uh, what, what I think is distinctive about this, one of the things that's distinctive about this form of capitalism is that it takes an interest in your person. Mm -hmm. It's not just concerned about what you do at work. It has an interest in your person. It has an interest in your whole <laughs> being and is, you know, actively through a number of uh, mechanisms trying to reshape you as a person, mm -hmm. not just shape your behavior, but shape you as a person. And that uh, I think, you know, uh, religion is Christianity, but other religions too, is one of the few things in uh, contemporary life that has a similar person-forming capacity in that it, its objective is to shape you as a person completely, totally, in ways that affect the whole of your life. So if you want to counter a system that has an interest in your person and is attempting to shape you as a person, you know, fundamentally change your understanding of your relation to yourself and your understanding of your relation to other people, you know, all, all <laughs> extensively, not just at work, but at play, at home, in your family, in your politics, blah, blah, blah. Then you need a, a counter-person-forming uh, force, and it seems to me that Christianity and other religious forms are one of the few things that can do that. And I think, I mean, I find that very exciting. I think that um, there's something about Christian education that becomes very important at that point. I mean, I, I think one thing... It strikes me is that perhaps if St. Paul was with us, he would be saying that this um, economy defined in this financial way, this is, the, this is the, the, the place in which we live and move and have our being, and it's almost invisible to us, and it is forming our character. Yeah, and just yet, to call to be more self-conscious about what's happening to you so and then, to be able to uh, appeal to your own Christian commitments absolutely. in ways that can distance you from that. So then to be able to, to expand our imaginations is to create yeah. critical distance. Yeah. It's to open up those spaces... And uh, I mean, this is more anecdotal, but just to give like a kind of a living example of this, um, there's a school I know very well. Um, and uh, it, they had a project for the children recently, and I just thought this was fascinating. They asked all the children to create a superhero, which they've now made in papier-mâché and have hung from the ceiling. That's significant. You're asking very young children in a primary school mm. to think about what defines a superhero. And they've obviously spent quite a few hours thinking about the values this superhero would have. They are resilience, independence um, and uh, risk-taking and problem-solving 
and they are all highly individualistic. I noticed that there was not a single quality there that was about um, compassion or working in teams or sharing ideas with others. And I could really feel the formation of the character around that sense of a collapsed individualism. So um, that I was, I was really sensing here is an opportunity for Christians to speak into the formation of the character of people mm -hmm. in a way that I feel is resonating with mm -hmm. what you were speaking about. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So thank you. So we're really talking about being more aware of the ways in which our economic system shapes our character and our desires mm -hmm. and our ways of relating. Yep. and becoming more self-conscious about that. And, oh, and, and therefore also beginning to, to imagine other ways of doing it, mm -hmm. uh, which, it's, which is, comes through that relating to a third thing, which is God himself. Yeah, yeah I mean, there are all yeah. kinds of other aspects that I wasn't sure. able to develop. But basically, yeah, to view your Christian commitments as person-forming, yeah. and that means sure. they have an influence on all your activities, all your behavior at work, outside of work, as a consumer, blah, blah, blah. And uh, just to think more... Uh, uh, explicitly about what those Christian commitments actually mean. And to pray, which of course, in terms of being with a capital B, brings you into relation with that other. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about Christian practices of prayer, repentance, uh, confession, all kinds of things of that sort. Mm -hmm. Definitely. But you do, in a way, you, you need something like the, the, the Christian imagination and understanding of how people are formed before you can see that that's not what's happening yeah. in the society that we're in. I mean, you can be so enclosed in the economic system that we're actually in that, that it never really occurs to you that you are being formed by it until mm -hmm. you see there might be another pattern of formation that's available that, that simulates the, the Christian imagination. I would guess it would, it, that, that's quite an unusual thing that you've said there, that we are being formed by the, the economic system. And once you've said it, then you think, oh, yeah, of course we are. But before you say it, it's, it's not so clear, is it? Yeah, no, no, I'm trying to make that all very explicit. But uh, I mean, another issue is just that it's, it's not obvious what your Christian commitments, you know, how your Christian commit commitments should shape you. Obviously, there are lots of uh, different uh, understandings of what Christianity is all about and what it means for your day-to-day -day life. Uh, so I'm, uh, you know, really arguing a normative case here. I mean, I'm, I'm coming up with this particular understanding of what it means uh, to live in community with others who are shaped by Christ. But clearly, especially like in a U.S. context, uh, uh, you know, often uh, religious right, I mean, they're, they're informed by their Christian commitments. So I'll give them benefit of the doubt there. And they think they're fully compatible with... Um, Whatever you want to call it, a neoliberal agenda, which you know your own, your your own, your uh, you know you're individually responsible for um, your own moral development, your own economic success. It's all of a piece, and yeah. So a lot, a lot of what's at issue here is just a, a call to Christians to just think hard about what their Christian commitments actually mean. I mean, I have my own understanding of what those Christian commitments mean and how you should be formed accordingly, but this is a uh, a question, I think, for every Christian, every Christian denomination, every Christian parish to, to think through that. Um, it, it's also, interestingly, a, a, a question to be put to people with, who wouldn't say they had a, a religious faith mm -hmm, sure. at all, because we are all interested in, in what kind of people we want to be. Mm -hmm. um, and actually just sort of standing back enough to say, ask that question about the life you're living is it making you the kind of person that you think you'd like to be? Is it making you your superhero? Mm. Um, 
Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, what else? I mean, I'm certainly not saying that Christianity is the only thing that does this. I think religions do this generally, but it, it's another question whether there's anything besides religion that helps you to do this, like in other uh, cultural contexts. Uh, I mean, there were whatever you want to call them, philosophical spiritualities that w were of this sort. They were person-shaping. You know, you, you, were, you were developing a worldview that uh, affected the whole of your person and the whole of your engagement with, with life. And it doesn't seem to be the case that there are a lot of uh, kind of philosophical spiritualities, if you want to call it that, that are kind of live, um, effective uh, forces on the current scene. Although not exclusively. When I was giving lectures in Edinburgh, I mean, some of the member and members of the audience were humanists, and they had um, what is, in effect, you know, a religious spirituality. They were thinking very deeply about their, their own worldview, their own beliefs about how things work, how, what sort of people they, they should be, and they were living you know, in community with other people with similar commitments, trying to figure that out. Yeah. So it's not exclusively a religious in any obvious way. Um, I, I can think of... Um um, like an atheist like Iris Murdoch, sure. who would be deeply concerned about love. And actually, those um, it's so helpful what you pulled out with the, the financial, um, almost like anti-values of rivalry and competition, and you showed how self-subverting they are. They're even set up logically to combat one another. They're self-defeating. And all those ways in which, like as Luther would say, that the sin is the heart turned in upon itself, and she would see all those corrosions. And as an atheist would, would be concerned that we live in such ways that those around us are able to expand their realities. And we, we deliberately put certain limits on ourselves so that others can flourish. So definitely there are those other perspectives, which would be more secular perspectives, perhaps, and yet would absolutely be concerned with the same things, I think, with which you are. Yeah. And while I'm appealing to Christian practice in some broad sense of practice as a kind of uh, counter conduct, uh, you know, to kind of interrupt uh, capitalist, uh, the capitalist uh, influence on personal formation. Uh, I'm not saying that, well, you know, like uh, the church is an ideal society. I mean, the, the kind of church understanding of uh, Christian community that I'm putting forward here is very much uh, one that's stressing Christian sin and Christian failure and Christian communal failure. And so you're not distinguishing uh, Christian practice from the wider practice because <laughs> one's ideal and the other one is perverse. I mean, to the contrary, it, it has more to do with some kind of honest recognition of failing within uh, a Christian community and the way in which that community can still be organized in some you know, mutually beneficial way, even though and in and through uh, the failings of its members. Might be a good time to begin to ask if there's a few other questions. Maybe the best thing might be simply just to, uh, if you've got a question, stick a hand in the air and um, the um, microphone will come your way. Thank you, Catherine, very much for your lecture. Uh, our call on earth is to reveal uh, and live God's new reality in the today and to pull back that curtain that we saw, I think, particularly in Jesus' baptism, that curtain being pulled back uh, there. What model of work, of markets of cooperation, uh, of uh, profit enhancement uh, can we as the church encourage and introduce into our society? I suppose again, what would work look like in the new heaven and new earth? Uh, well, <laughs> the, uh, 
Uh, I mean, the most general thing that I was trying to uh, contribute by uh, you know this this broader series of lectures was to come up with a Protestant anti-work ethic. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so I'm trying to problematize the the value of work in certain ways. Uh, so that's uh, partly why I'm having difficulty answering your question. But if it's just a question of, uh, I mean, I think if this is part of where you're leading, I mean, I think churches can be uh, experimental spaces for um, novel economic relationships. I mean, churches, religious institutions uh, have always been, in effect, banks. They're like banks. They were banks <laughs> originally. They pool resources, and that means that they can do innovative things uh, with pooled, re uh, pooled resources. So I, I you know, think there, there's a lot of there are any number of community um, development projects that that might be encouraged uh, through the use of church funds. So uh, <laughs> that kind of work is what's at issue. Then yeah, I think there there, there are lots of interesting things that could be done, but. I'm not exactly sure where you were going with your question. I suppose in Genesis is revealed uh, God uh, created us um, to enjoy, to see his creation flourish uh, throughout then the kind of uh, apocalyptic visions we get of the new world when Christ returns. It's a physical uh, reimagining of his original creation uh, that is restored to its full and proper order. Uh, we as God's uh, created people have a role in uh, continuing uh, that perfection. I believe through <laughs> reading the Bible, we, we will work, uh, we will uh, reap and harvest. And so I suppose, what can we, by uh, looking forward to that new reality, that reality of God's new creation, can we pull that into the today, pull that into the way that uh, we uh, work uh, and see the economy. Um, just very quickly, <laughs> randomly, I'm an ice cream salesman. Uh, my job is uh, to uh, pull natural resources together, make something delicious, and sell it uh, to chefs. It's wonderful. And the way that we model business uh, is through giving to charity, through good employment. My bonus is not based off of my personal work, but the company as a whole. So we're really trying to challenge uh, that uh, where it is individualized into a more corporate and cooperative setting. So I suppose, I think there's gonna be work in heaven. How can we reveal that today? Yeah, no, that's yeah, a huge question. Uh, yes, new heaven and new earth. Yeah, you're, tr you're, you're trying to move towards that, but uh, nobody has a blueprint for what that will mean. So, <laughs> Uh, I think there has to be an honest, honest recognition of that. Uh, I mean, the kinds of um, workplace changes that you're talking about that you have direct experience with, yeah, I think they're, they're probably all to the good. And I mean, even if you don't have a pl blueprint for what the new heaven and earth would look like in a in material sense, you at least know that it's, it's uh, an organization in which uh, you have genuine uh, flourishing of uh, the created order, human beings and the, the natural world. So I mean, you've got some, you've got some endpoint, even if you don't have any blueprint for how that might be come about. But um, yeah, so I, if that's what you mean by work, yeah, sure. I think you should be working for that, <laughs> definitely.
We've had uh, loads of questions that have been tweeted and texted in, so if I can just feed one or two of those to you. Um, there's a question here, I suppose, which is, um, should Christians do social investment? What's the place of social investment in a capitalist culture? Should tr Christians be trading for profit to give, or does that fuel capitalism? So it's, I guess it's kind of a question about philanthropy in some way. Is that a, the model of... Um, the kind of whole John Wesley, earn as much as you can, give as much as you can. Is that, is that a, a valid um, reading of the economy from a Christian point of view? Or actually, does that just fuel a capitalist competitive system, which um, is not... Well, I don't know about fueling it, but, uh, but yeah, I'm clearly calling for some more fundamental change than that, not simply redistribution after the fact, um, but that there's something in the matter with the way the profits are generated to begin with before they're distributed in charitable forms. Uh, yeah, charity would be great, but the, the uh, underlying issue is uh, where did the wealth concentration come from to begin with that then is uh, nicely distributed <laughs> in a loving way, if possible. Sure. But, but yeah, I think the, 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 the more fundamental issues have to do with the, the way profit is generated and not so much the, the way it's redistributed. Philanthropy is fine as far as it goes, but it doesn't really address the underlying yep. mm -hmm. character formation, forming characteristic of, of capitalist societies. Yep. Yep. Good. And there's some other questions around um, the kind of economics of the Gospels. Um, and uh, so one of the questions here is, um, how, what do you make of the economic or financial language of the Bible? The spirit is a down payment, uh, parables of investment. I was thinking about the parable of the, the, the workers in the vineyard, you know, who all work different hours, but they're given exactly the same, which it, it just always seems a very unfair system compared to the way we normally kind of arrange work and, and, and um, remuneration for work. Uh, when you read some of the kind of economic language of the, of the Gospels, and there's, a, there's quite a lot of economic language there, uh, do you see that um, feeding into your analysis, and do you see, you see a different economy being given there? Uh, I mean, the, yeah, there's a, a, there's a lot of really interesting work done <laughs> on uh, biblical, uh, biblical use of economic language, particularly in the New Testament, uh, you know, like Gary Anderson's understanding of sin, the use of... Well, language of debt or the wages of sin or, you know, treasure in heaven. Uh, I mean, I've done some research about that. <laughs> I mean, I've read other people's work, let's put it that way. But uh, what I'm interested in and what I think has probably not been uh, emphasized enough in that scholarship is, is the weird way that that language is uh, being employed. So, for example, um, uh, you know, you gain, say, by giving uh, charitable uh, gifts to others, you gain treasure in heaven, you uh, overcome the debt of your own sin by uh, giving uh, charitably to others. All that, all that language uh, is being used in a, in a rather weird way in that, um, uh, well, there are all kinds of ways of, of developing that, but you know, you're giving away something to somebody else, but you gain a benefit of an extraordinary sort. So it's a very odd kind of uh, gift in that you benefit from it and you get tenfold what you've, you've given away in the form of some kind of heavenly treasure which uh, never rusts, never, uh, can never be lost. So it's, both the recipient and the giver. Yeah, yeah. Benefit. So I think, I think, the I think giver is one should pay very close attention to exactly how that uh, wage language and uh, payment language and debt language and 
owing and blah, 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 how the language is being really strangely employed uh, in ways that kind of, it, it seems to me, uh, does more to explode the usual understandings of um, economic exchange. And there's a particular question here about the, the, the parable of the talents and how you would read the parable of the talents in regard to your uh, view of uh, a new kind of economy. How do you read it? <laughs> well, I, I, just, I guess it's a fascinating one because I suppose it does seem to talk about how you invest, how different characters invest. Um, well, like the, the two versions of the stories are different, aren't they? And you get different amounts, and, and in one story they get the same amounts, uh, but they're, they're invested in. Um, I mean, it seems to me it's also it's something about uh, that actually the, the the character of the investment and how it comes back is not necessarily related to the actual capacity yeah. of the mm -hmm. person right. who invests them. Yeah. That's something slightly outside of their control. Yeah. There's an element of so there's an element of, of so this is something beyond them. And so yeah. I, I suppose I would read those. those yeah, I mean, it's a parable that can be easily read so that it conforms to one's commonsensical understanding. You know, you use wisely what you've been given. You know, there are a number of parables that seem to be suggesting something like that. But, mm. but yeah, there are much uh, odder ways of in interpreting the, the story. Mm. I mean, in part, I'm trying to argue in the, the rest of the lectures that will at some point be published that, mm. um, yeah, you are supposed to make the most of what's been... Mm given to you, for example, but, uh, but the religious project in which you're, <laughs> uh, is a very strange project. It's not like uh, maximizing your resources or you know, maximizing your human capital or making the best of your abilities or something like that. It's a very, very weird project. Um, and, and one of the weirdnesses of it, of course, is that then is that profit isn't for the person. Um, the, the point of the story is, is when the master comes home and you're accounting to the master. Yep. What was his right. mm -hmm. lent to you temporarily. <laughs> and that, again, is part of this weird capitalist language, isn't it? And I'm, uh, thank you, Jane. And I'm also struck that we're um, slightly told off in the Gospels for assuming that we know how the divine economist works. Mm -hmm. So uh, you're a tough um, giver, and I know how you will repay me. Oh, you do, do you? Mm -hmm. So the sense of that remains a mystery, quite how the economy is anchored, quite how things are calculated and weighed is mysterious. There's another question here about um, economics and sin, which you've spoken about a bit. And there's, there's a quote, I don't know whether it's a direct quote or somebody just come up with this, but it says, uh, um, economics is the study of sinful human society. Economic policy seeks to discipline these sinful drives in the economic sphere for the good of society. Uh, is that a right? Would you agree with that? Or is that a, something you, do, you do take issue with? That idea that, that economics is basically, economic policy is designed to discipline sinful desires or drives in the economic sphere for the good of society. Is economics that kind of negative thing in that sense? Well, I mean, again, depending on how, what kind of economy you're talking about, yeah, I mean, it, there is something quite interesting, uh, and I think Christians were interested in commercial society for this reason, that it does seem to... Um, make people uh, benefit one another even when they don't like one another, um, you know, so that it uh, uh, kind of turns uh, greedy, self-interested people into benefactors uh, sort of against their will. <laughs> um, and that, that is very interesting. Uh, I mean, I mean, the 
the common criticism of that nowadays is that it, it simply encourages uh, that behavior. You know, it's not just making do with greedy, self-interested people and trying to turn their uh, base uh, instincts into something that will actually be uh, beneficial to, uh, to other people, but that it actually uh, foments and encourages and cements uh, those uh, kind of base motivations. And, uh, I don't know. I don't know about that. I mean, again, uh, I mean, the kind of Christian position that I'm putting forward here is one that's very, very uh, sin-focused. <laughs> so that, yeah, you really do have to do, you know, if you're going to have a, a, a society, uh, even of uh, well-intentioned Christians, you're going to have to cope with uh, sinful behavior. And, uh, you know, I'm not the sort of Christian theologian who thinks that saints are a very likely outcome, <laughs> uh, kind of empirically, as <laughs> a empirical conclusion. Let's so just go to one or two other sort of uh, voice questions. There's one over here. You've painted a picture of modern capitalism, which seems in a way very um, unintuitive, almost illogical. Um, if it is so unintuitive, why is it that we continue to subscribe to it? Is it just an accident we've come to it? Is it, um, or is there some underlying um, greater problem, which means we, we almost prefer it to a more logical, intuitive, Christian um, ways. For example, is it um, that we've become too hedonistic, um, too individualistic? Well, I'm not sure I understand your question exactly. Could you re repeat it uh, in maybe somewhat different forms? Uh, I mean, so, why is it that... I'm trying to understand your question so a little bit we, better. Why uh, is it that capitalism can suck people in so if this we, is the way why, they're being why shaped? Do, why have we chosen and why do we continue to follow uh, one which seems so illogical if, um, you know, why do we lack the motivation to, to move to a, a more um, community-based, oh, more mm -hmm. Christian, you know, for example, why is it that people have chosen this um, unintuitive one? Is, as a, is, it, a, is well, it because of a greater underlying problem is what I'm asking? Um, yeah, I mean, I didn't say all that much about, you know, my understanding of kind of the interlocking pieces of the contemporary capitalist uh, configuration of things. I mean, it, uh, I mean, part of the, I mean, there, there are a lot of mechanisms that are holding it in place uh, that, are, that are very effective uh, means of forming people kind of unconsciously. You know, it's not obvious that you're being, uh, affected in the way that you're affected. Uh, you know, it's only like after the fact that you realize, gosh, I've turned into a horrible person. <laughs> How did that happen? Uh, uh, so part of it is that the mechanisms are somewhat invisible. They don't make, uh, make themselves obvious, but also they're extremely uh, effective. And in part, they're effective because you don't have any choice in the matter. Uh, I mean, this is something that, you know, I'm implicitly referencing uh, Max Weber's uh, The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism. And, um, you know, he, his language of an iron cage, uh, you know, once capitalism becomes the only game in town and, you know, you don't have any other way of making a living, you are forced to uh, take up roles within corporations, et cetera. And uh, once you're in them, <laughs> they're going to be shaping you. I mean, they're very effective uh, shaping mechanisms. I mean, just like the very simple one I gave about performance pay. That is very insidious, and once you're in it, how do you, heck do you get out of it? Uh, it's very difficult to get out of it. You're in competition with every other person in your corporation to, you know, best them. 
you know, your uh, pay is effectively dependent on the bonus that you get at the end of the year. And it's very hard not to <laughs> be sucked into that. I mean, why wouldn't you be sucked into that? You don't have any other choice. I mean, you could quit, but... I think as well, that's also reminding me of as well, is not only are you sucked in and it's the system in which you find yourself, I find that as a preacher, when I then preach a gospel of grace, people find it so difficult to accept that actually life is graced all the way through, that you are created as a creature, and that by grace you are created, sustained, saved and held, and in some sense you have nothing to do but to enjoy and rest in your God. So suddenly you realize it's so hard for that gospel of grace to get traction because so much around us is forming us to believe that this could not be true. It could not possibly all be grace all the way through, all the way down. Which is why you, always on God Pod, you never get away with, with the God Pod without discussing Augustine. Um, which is why you kind of need that sort of Augustinian sense that, that underneath there is a sort of deep memory of our need for grace, a deep memory of our embeddedness in, in God. And that, yes, there are forces around in, in our world. It's a cap the, the kind of structure in which we are caught is one that, um, that, that, that um, feeds our desire for competition and rivalry and so on. But underneath that, there's something much more fundamental, which is our, our, actually our, our sense of belonging to one another, our, our kind of deep memory of grace, which may be hidden under layers of sin and, and, um, and, uh, and, and twisted desire. But underneath, there is still something there which when you preach grace, can still resonate with people at that much deeper level. They sense it's true, but it's very hard to believe it. Exactly. Wonderful. We've got one time for one more question. Thank you, and thank you very much again for the fascinating lecture. Um, Boyd Hilton, when he reflects on uh, Victorian philanthropy in his book, The Age of Atonement, suggests that one reason for it is that... Uh, these great industrialists knew it was hard for ca camels to get through the eyes of needles. They knew that uh, all this money they'd made was a dangerous thing for them to have and to hold, even though they'd probably worked very hard to get it. We've been talking a bit about preaching things which people believe. I wonder how many people today in Western society really believe that it's hard for camels to get through the eye of needles, or at least identify themselves as camels, and whether there's something we should do about that. Yeah. I mean, in terms of effective preaching, I mean, maybe that's somewhere where uh, one should go. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I mean, there does seem to be a lot of uh, efforts presently to sanitize uh, incredible wealth. Uh, you don't even need to be a philanthropist to have it sanitized. Um, and part of... Uh, Partly that's what I'm interested in, just the way in which uh, it makes perfect sense that this level of wealth concentration should exist and is justifiable by, say, hard work or effort or cleverness or uh, whatever. And, you know, there's a need to undermine uh, that uh, comfort level. Um, so, yeah, maybe the eye of the needle and the camel would be a good thing to trot out to, uh, to remind people that uh, one shouldn't be quite so comfortable. More philanthropy, fewer rocket ships.
was GodPod, a podcast from St Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try. Thank you.